Good morning, everybody. Uh, if, you don't, if we haven't met yet, I'm Jay. I'm part of the teaching team here at One Life. This is uh, Pastor Dave and Pastor Elliot. And so, yeah, for the last few weeks, we've been doing a very short uh, theological formation series and just covering theological topics that maybe we don't typically talk about in a Sunday sermon, right? And so, you know, we, we've had these three topics that we've talked about. We talked about uh, different atonement theories. We talked about baptism. And then we also talked about the canon of scripture last week. And so today we wanted to just do a little bit of processing. And uh, we're just going to have like sort of a, a conversation, a, a brief Q&A. And uh, we've, we've prepared a few questions on the different topics. We'll spend a few minutes on each of the different messages. Um, and, and, you know, we've prepared some questions, but really we want you to feel free. Like if you have some questions that are kind of burning a hole in your stomach that you want to ask, or even if you just want to, you know, as we're talking, you want to kind of contribute something to the conversation, we want to invite you guys to feel free to do that. So you guys can uh, just raise your hand. If, if, if I don't see you for some reason, just at some point, just stand up <laughs> and say, Jay, I got a question or whatever. But uh, we want to invite you guys to be able to engage in this conversation, okay? And so let's just go ahead and jump right in. And so, you know, let's spend a few minutes on the topic of baptism. So Pastor Elliot, he spoke on baptism a couple of weeks ago and uh, just gave a really great message. Thank you so much, Elliot. And so there was one thing that you mentioned very briefly during that conversation. You were talking about sort of the different types of baptism, right? And one of the things that you mentioned sort of in that list of different ways or different types of baptism was the baptism of the Spirit. And so I thought maybe we could spend a little bit of time talking about that, because I feel like that one is the one where it's like, yeah, what is that exactly, right? Like maybe, maybe we don't, you know, spend a ton of time really talking about what is the baptism of the Spirit? How do I know that I have it? You know, obviously, if you're coming from a Pentecostal or charismatic background, it's a little bit more concrete, like, you know, I know that I have the baptism of the Spirit because I spoke in tongues, right? But maybe if you're outside of that tradition, it's kind of like, yeah, what, what is it? How do I know I've got it? Um, what should I be looking for? What does it do for me? Things like that. And so I just want to kind of invite you to speak a little bit more on the topic of the baptism of the Spirit. Any thoughts that you have? Yeah, yeah. good question. <laughs> um, I think the first thing to keep in mind when it comes to baptism of the Spirit is that Yes, we know baptism of the Spirit mainly in terms of like the charismatic Pentecostal sense, but you know that, that came out much later in terms of like Christian history. So the idea of baptism of the Spirit was already, it already existed in like Roman Catholic traditions, already existed in um, Eastern Orthodox traditions and, um, and Lutheran traditions. And, and so it, it was much later in, throughout the course of Christian history where charismatic where there was a charismatic movement, right, that came up, and then there was a very kind of clear, like, since that happened, um, there's like this very clear idea of like, this is baptism of the Spirit, there's like a baptism that happens, or some, some, sometimes the distinction is made as a water baptism, and that's more like the more ritualistic side of like Christian expression. Um, and then once charismatic, kind of charismatic movement came out, they're like, oh, well, that's more of like ordinance, not necessarily, it's not needed for salvation, but the work of baptism of the Spirit um, is when, when you are immersed in the Holy Spirit. So that came out much later, so there's signs, like you mentioned, like speaking of tongues, for example. Um, I think, uh, I, think I, I heard um, in 1960s, there was actually a charismatic movement happening within the Roman Catholic Church. And so they met and had a council about how do we define, like, what, what, how are we going to define baptism of the Spirit within the Catholic Church? So how they defined it, they, they decided to distinguish um, 
there's a baptism that happens、um, theologically, and there's a baptism that happens experientially. So when you get bapt- water baptism, the sacrament of baptism within the Catholic Church is you get baptized and you are you are saved in in that process in the Catholic tradition, and then there's an experiential grace or experiential、um, moment when you experience the Holy Spirit and it comes out in different ways, and that is the、um, that is how Catholics since then early 1960s have defined. Baptism of the Spirit. Lutherans have a very similar、um, idea, and I think since then Protestants have kind of kind of caught up to that understanding as well.、Um, I think for where I am now, and this is just me. This isn't kind of like any.、Um, Karl Barth actually has really good resources on this too.、Um, but I think I think for me,、um, like I, I was baptized as a Presbyterian infant, and then grew up and was confirmed when I turned 18, and Um, and I think for an 18-year-old, I feel like I, I followed Jesus legitimately. Like I, I thought I was, I, I was doing the right thing. Like I was convinced, like where I am with what I know, I feel like this is me saying yes to Jesus.、Um, it, it was, I made that choice. And so, just given my circumstances as a Presbyterian, good Presbyterian boy, I'm like, okay, how do I go through that? I get confirmed instead of back or sprinkled, and then,、um, and then that's how it happened for me. But it wasn't until much later, after college, actually, Rayan was there when this happened, where someone was like, "We're in a mission trip," and then someone was like, "Does somebody want the, you know, like, gift of tongue?" I'm like, "I think that might be me."、Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of happened, and so,、um, and so that happened much later. But I don't, at the time, I, I didn't. Although there are charismatic people around me that are like, "Hey, you need the baptism of the Spirit," I didn't receive it as such. I thought I'm just maturing in my faith, and so I think. How I'm viewing or understanding baptism with the Spirit is, you know, every once in a while you just kind of have those aha moments in your faith. You're like, I'm a little bit different from where I was before because I know something else more about God and the Holy Spirit and how He works. And I would kind of, it was kind of like more like those spiritual aha moments of the baptism of the Spirit, where it comes in waves and comes in like different phases.、Mm-hmm. And so、um, I know that's like for、um, you know some of my mentors who are like. Who are super charismatic would be like rolling in their graves right now, <laughs>、um, but I think I, that's how I learned to process that、um, since then. So, for example, like culturally in in Christendom, we see like you know we hear talks about deconstruction and whatnot. I feel like I wonder if that's a process of baptism of the Spirit that the church is going through, Christendom is going through. We're like, okay, we need to reassess where we are, and we need to get real about. Where we've been and how, where's where's God leading us in this next phase of our spiritual journey,、um, and so that's kind of I'm like processing、um, this idea of the baptism of the Spirit. But I feel like you you like want to add to that. Yeah, Dave, you want to jump in?、Yeah. Um, and then Peter, I see you, Peter. Oh yeah, you sure? Okay.、Um, And my story is somewhat similar.、Um, I grew up、uh, theologically in more of a Reformed tradition, so、uh, they taught a lot about infant baptism, and、uh, we can talk a little bit more about that, but、uh, at a different time. But、um, uh, I had a mentor who was on staff at the International House of Prayer in、uh, Kansas City, and、um, we walked alongside each other for several decades. And there was some point in time where,、um, and for whatever reason, whenever I am not in America. The spiritual life seems so much more salient, you know, and spiritual warfare, angels and demons, stuff like that. 
it just, you can't, it's really difficult to do ministry without engaging in that world. Whereas, for whatever reason here in America, you can do this for a decade, you can do ministry for decades and not really engage in that world. So, you know, growing up, um, I've had several encounters and experiences with, you know, demon possession and casting demons out and even had uh, my own experience of uh, certain... I hope I'm not freaking anyone out here. <laughs> I, I don't speak for the whole church. This is just Dave. <laughs> I won't even say Pastor Dave. This is just Dave. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and there are times where I, you know, I put my hands on someone, I feel this sense of electricity and, and release, and then it was confirmed on the other side. And, um, and, and one day I, I went to my, uh, approached my, um, uh, my mentor, and I said, hey, can you impart to me the gift of tongues? And uh, we, uh, he said, sure, you want to do it right now? I'm like, okay. And we had a whole afternoon free, and, um, and it happened. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm a professor at a seminary, so, so much of my faith is grounded in, like, you know, rationality and reading books and stuff like that. And, and, and the, the gift of uh, praying in tongues is, it's almost as if, like, you're, uh, you're praying in a different language, so you're bypassing your mind, and you're, you're, you're praying from your heart, and it's almost as if there's this, your soul there's stuff that it wants to express, but your mind just kind of is blocking it, you know, because it's trying to fit into these categories. And, and, and when I pray in tongues, it's like that part gets to come out, you know, and I can tell something's talking to God, even though I'm not com completely consciously aware of it. And in my years of uh, deconstruction of the faith, you know, I've been you know, hurt by a lot of stuff and, you know, church experiences and, you know, Christian communities <laughs> continue to do so, as many of us uh, are. Um, I feel like what, what has anchored me through the deconstruction is this experiential reality of, you know, I've seen too much of God and the spiritual world for me to deconstruct all of this as like socially constructed or, you know, and, and that actually, um, my, my Pentecostal charismatic side uh, background has actually been my foundation that has kept me afloat through my deconstruction. And now that my, my mind and the other parts of my heart life has caught up uh, post deconstruction, um, it, it's all kind of a part of this integrated whole. Yeah. And I'll just add one kind of asterisk to all that, like, I said maturity in, in the faith earlier about like kind of baptism of the spirit, but I, I do want to make it clear, like, because you don't have, if you don't have these gifts, it doesn't mean you're yeah, spiritually yeah, yeah, yeah. immature. Like, I got to make that clear. Because I, I feel like there's like this opposite end of that where like that needs to happen. But I think there, there's so many ways, like, you know, our God is so infinitely vast and, 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 and diverse. Like, we don't have to engage in that way in order to mature in our faith. Like, there's so many ways to do that. So I want to be clear about that. Uh, Peter, did you still want to? Yeah, yeah, I think that was a, a great, a great add to the conversation. So I am 
you know, we've had three people share and all three of them actually have received the gift of tongues. So I can, for those of you guys who are in here, I, I've never had the gift of tongues. So I, I am speaking as one of you if you've never experienced that. So I'm kind of on the outside looking in that it's always been... We call you very, normies. Yeah. It's always been very myster mysterious to me, like... Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> you know, I guess it's just one of those things you have to experience. And so I love what, what all of you guys have kind of said there that, you know, really at the end of the day, the baptism of the Spirit is about kind of an empowering for ministry. Um, it's, a, it's like a seal. It's kind of like a mark that we belong to God. And also kind of that kicking off that transformation of like the death of the old person and the raising to new life of the new person. And so that's probably a fuller understanding, I think, as what we're all getting at of what it means to be baptized in the spirit. But and then kind of going back to Elliot, I think what you were saying is that um, what a lot of people would say is that, yes, there's sort of that initial baptism of the spirit that you experience when you give your life to Jesus and, and truly enter into that relationship with him. But along the way that there can be these moments of particular experience, particular empowering, uh, particular maybe even leaps forward in your, in your relationship and, or in your ability to minister in different ways. And so that's kind of maybe what you're alluding to. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and to add to that, I think one of the, for me, one of the operation, operating and foundational principles of uh, kind of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit is that it's never all or nothing, right? So even when you have something like really like, um, you know, miraculous, like a, a really powerful work of the Holy Spirit, it's never complete on this side of heaven, you know? There's always residue, you know, there's always... It's just one step in the journey, and there's more to come. And I think uh, we oftentimes will set us up ourselves for disappointment and failure when we go, okay, God worked on me, and he did something here, and that must be, it's done, you know? Or, and I think um, what's been disastrous for many churches is when you have a Christian leader who's had this powerful, dramatic, miraculous testimony, and God's really done some great stuff there, but then people think that he's, this person's like, you know, perfect, you know? And almost always there's some residue, you know? And people just assume that residue is not there because God's done this miraculous work, and then they cause tons of destruction because of that. Um, and, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so just for time's sake, I, I think we could keep going on this, but uh, I want to ask one more question, Italia, particularly on baptism, uh, before we move on to the next topic. But um, so obviously we have a baptism coming up, and so, you know, we're going to, like, if anybody's thinking about getting baptized, I think there's a meeting after service today and things like that. But one, one thing that you mentioned during your message was that there are different perspectives on baptism, you know, like the meanings and the modes and things like that, um, that we acknowledge. But we also have a preference here, right? Here we, per, we have a preference for believer's baptism, though we don't say that that's like the only right way or something like that. Just kind of a very practical or concrete question, you know, since we are trying to sort of embrace sort of like a range of perspectives on different things, like let's say if there was somebody here and they wanted to be baptized, but they prefer a different mode. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Like would, would we kind of be like, hey, you know what, this is our preference here at this church, but you know, that we default to, but you know, if you're really convicted, like you really want your child to be baptized or you really, I don't know what it, what it would be. Any, any just general thoughts on that? I don't know how much you've really had a chance to think about that. But. Yeah. I, um, I feel like that conversation is like kind of beyond like baptism, right? Because we're, really we're thinking about like, what is our ethos and practice of our church? Um, you know, 
Jay, like when you started the series off, one thing you did really well is like talking about how why we have different perspectives and different views, different teachers from here. And um, maybe a short way of kind of kind of describing all of that is like, I feel like when we get to heaven, <laughs> we're gonna be like, oh, you're here, and they're gonna be like, oh, you're here too, you know. <laughs> and um, <laughs> And, <laughs> and I guess like, I guess kind of like my um, idealistic side is saying like, why, why can't we start a little bit of that now, right? So, um, so the short answer is yes, we could have those varying conversations, but um, I wonder if like there's, we could have a conversation like, hey, like we feel like Baptist, believers baptism is important because of this. We feel like it's important that you say in front of people, like, I am making a choice. This, this, this isn't I'm making. Like, maybe the way you want to exercise the mode of baptism might be different, but is it okay if we emphasize that? And then I'm totally, like, I'm, like, you know, I'm not condemning my own, like, Presbyterian way of being baptized, you know, but, like, so I'm okay, like, hey, so, like, what are some ways that we could kind of, like, in, in the way we present our liturgy, presented in a way that's consistent to what we're teaching at One Life, and, but still faithful to where you feel like God is leading and speaking to you. Um, so I would prob we'll probably have to be a conversation or two um, and kind of like work that out. Um, same thing with um, infant, um, infant baptism. But like, like I mentioned um, on the message, I, I do feel like infant baptism, um, there's something about just like, like we're just this kid is all, all in, and we're just going to trust God and dedicate this child, or not just dedicate, that's confusing. We're going to baptize this child trusting in the work of God that's ahead of, ahead of this child. And I feel like that's, there's something worth saying about that. I think there's something about the collective faith when the people of God enter into that. Um, but so I, so I, I, like I'm okay emphasizing that. But, um, but yeah, it'll have to be a conversation. Definitely, we'll have to iron that out. Okay. Yeah. So the conversation is at least open. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Um, let's go ahead and move on. So if you have more questions on baptism, you know, maybe we'll be able. Or, or did you? Are there any questions, follow-up questions on anything we talked about so far about the gift of the Holy Spirit or baptism? If not, that's okay too. <laughs> okay. So let's move on. Actually, to um, so Pastor Dave last week he spoke on the canon of Scripture, and so just you, just a couple of questions here. Um, so my first question is to you, Dave, like, what do you think is the relative importance of accepting the traditional canon? And like, you know, we kind of recognize, like, even within kind of the larger umbrella of Christendom, right, there are slight differences in the canon. And so just kind of, if, if you could share some thoughts on like, what is the relative importance in your view of accepting either all or even part of the canon? Is this like a critical issue of faith? Is this something that there can be some range and wiggle room? Just any, any thoughts you have on that? Yeah, good question. Um, I think it's critically important. You know, part of the reason is because uh, I think one of the, the points I tried to land last week is this idea that, you know, we, we're being formed by the Word of God. We're not the ones forming the Word of God. So we don't get to pick and choose what we like and, okay, we like this, so this is part of the Word of God, and we don't like this. And it, it's really the, 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 the other way around. Um, uh, the canon of Scripture has been closed for about, you know, 18, uh, 17, 18 centuries. Um, and we, uh, 
and we, we trust it. Uh, we trust the testimony of um, the early church. Um, we trust uh, Christian tradition. I know there are some discrepancies. So for example, in the Roman Catholic Church, there's apocryphal um, uh, literature. And um, uh, aside from that, it's pretty much the same as far as I can tell. And uh, what I appreciate about the Roman Catholic approach is they still call it apocryphal. You know, so uh, even though it's part of the Bible, they kind of recognize it as this separate set that is kind of set aside, you know, and um, from a Protestant perspective, because it's not included in our canon, it's not a repudiation of the apocryphal literature. So uh, for the most part, there's actually quite a lot of harmony uh, in between the two. Okay. Uh, Elliot, did you have anything you wanted to add on that or? No, but no. Maccabees is a cool read, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe going back to um, the question that was asked last week during the message was, you know, is there value in reading these non-canonical writings and books? And Dave, you kind of did a good job of making some distinctions between some that are more like, yeah, like, like let's say like the Apocrypha versus some that are more like, okay, these are recognized as being clearly, you know, second or third century Gnostic writings that are, you know, way outside of orthodoxy and so you kind of made that good so you know maybe kind of going back to that question and that point like if you were looking to you know expand your reading into some non-canonical texts yeah maybe a good place to start would be the apocryphal books because even if even if like from an evangelical perspective we don't recognize them as being canon there's still a lot of good history in there to give you a good background in terms of what was going on in the intertestamental period and uh and things like that so you know kind of referring back to that um, yeah, one thing I was going to say, and, and again, feel free if you have, if you have something you want to ask or jump in, uh, please raise your hand. But yeah, I appreciated Dave that you kind of good, did a good job of making a distinction because my perception of in our culture today is that the kind of the popular idea is that the way that the Bible that we have came together is you know basically under Constantine they gathered this, you know, bunch of people and they were just sifting through like hundreds of different texts that all could have equally ended up in our canon and they just basically handpicked, you know, 27 books that kind of suited their taste or suited their sort of, um, you know, objectives. And so I think it was a really important, Dave, what you shared that that's really not a, an accurate characterization of how the canon came together. But actually, if you look at yeah, the writings of early church fathers, early canon lists, you know, before you know, this council with, uh, under Constantine, like, that the majority of the New Testament was already recognized as having their source in the apostles and recognized in the churches as being authoritative, being read in the churches on Sunday and used in the worship services. And there were only a, a small bit of our New Testament that had any kind of question you know, amongst the Christian community. And so I think that's an important, you know, kind of a corrective to make because, yeah, I, I do think a lot of people have that perspective. It's like, yeah, just a bunch of religious dudes got together and under Constantine's direction, they, they picked the books that suited his taste of what, you know, he felt like the, the shape of the church should be. And, and that's really not an accurate picture. Um, okay. Uh, and maybe just to add to that real quick, uh, like I'm, I'm horrible with numbers. I'm like, I'm not that kind of Asian <laughs> Sorry, um, but I, I remember like um, <clears throat> a while back, like kind of they so they talk about like potential inaccuracies and, and all like potential errors in, in in scripture, but I remember like remember Jimmy Davis he t he taught on this a while back. Um, he's a mutual friend of ours, but he talked about how like there's one the oldest text is 
the Bible that we know of, and then the next one's like the Iliad, right? And but like they talk about how, <laughs> again, I'm like horrible with numbers, but uh, like I would say the Bible is like incredibly accurate, and then the Iliad is I think it's like 75% or something like that. It's like it just doesn't compare to the degree of accuracy to the Bible, but generally societally we're like the Iliad's legit, and we just kind of like kind of give credence like the Iliad's like good. And then yet there, there are so many more accurate copies and it's been verified in so many ways of the, the Bible as, as we have it um, that's as accurate. So it's kind of like this, um, so there's a reliability there in terms of like historically being preserved and, and the degrees of and the lengths of which it, it took to like keep it as, mm-hmm. as accurate and um, as possible. So that, yeah. Um, and maybe one thing, again, please jump in if you want to. One thing I'll add, obviously you can see this, this topic is kind of important to me, is um, I think it, it also is also helpful, at least for me, like just to have a mental shift of like, when we're talking about books being canonized in scripture, it's, I feel like it's helpful to kind of reframe it as like, it's, we're not talking about what books were recognized by a church council as being authoritative. I mean, yeah, that, that is part of it. But really, I think it's better to understand we recognize those books in which, or we recognize that which we know to have flowed out of the ministry of Jesus. That actually, I think that's a better understanding. The reason why we recognize the, the canon of Hebrew scripture or the Old Testament is because we recognize that Jesus accepted that canon and he, he viewed it as the word of God and he taught from it as the word of God, which is why we accept it. And the reason why we accept the New Testament canon is because we have this sort of this lineage throughout church history with the early church fathers and down through you know, church history that helps us know, hey, this is the, rec- the deposit of teaching that has been recorded that came from Jesus through his apostles, down to us through church history. And so I mean, it's a slight shift, but I think it's, a, it's better to think of canon and why we recognize something as canon is because it is, we, we recognize that it it's, has its source in Jesus and the apostles. Right? And so I, I think that's a helpful corrective, at least for me. Okay, anybody have anything you guys want to say here on this before we kind of move on to the next topic? Um, it doesn't have to be a question, too. It could just be if you, if you have something that you feel like you want to add to the conversation, that's, that's okay, too. Okay, well, let's move on then to the last topic. So in the first week, we talked about atonement theories. And um, just kind of, if you weren't there for that, the, the take-home of the message was um, there's kind of been several different theories of what the atonement means and, and what it accomplished, what Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection um, accomplished. And that really, we should not just try to accept one as being the correct one, but all of them have some basis in Scripture, and all of them kind of add to the richness and the depth of our understanding of what the atonement is. So that was kind of the take-home from that message. But um, I did want to kind of come back to uh, the, the penal substitution theory, which I acknowledge as being uh, poorly named, but also that... Um, it seems like in modern times, there's been more objections to sort of that particular uh, atonement theory. And so I don't know if you guys have seen that. Like, have you guys seen sort of in your circles or maybe even in your own heart kind of some um, wrestling with or bristling against the, the penal substitution um, atonement theory? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I'm kind of there right now. Um, to be honest with you, um, and um, I get it, 
uh, um, I, I, I feel like some of the critique, I, um, I feel like it's pretty legitimate. Um, I think the, the way negatively and how it's portrayed about like how um, it, it's, it's a way of appeasing a vindictive God and, and um, a bloodthirsty God. <laughs> um, so I, I, I hear that. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm looking into and kind of processing um, and where I am in, in terms of like my relationship with God in, in these areas, um, I, uh, I think Athanasius um, was a proponent of this, but he, I forgot the exact wording for, of it, but it's one of, one of the, I've heard it described as medical substitution instead of penal substitution. And it's the idea that instead of God being a bloodthirsty God, he's a blood donor God. And it's the idea that Jesus, um, he, he became flesh so that in his, as a pure God, pure human, he, he came so that it's almost like he's like Jesus, is like a dialysis machine where, where we enter into him, where, um, where we, when we are connected to him, where, where we enter into him, where, um, where we, when we are connected to him, our sins are purified and cleansed. And then just receiving the blood of Jesus and our, our blood being cleansed. Um, and some some of the reasons behind that I'm I'm reading is um, when we talks about how um, in the Old Testament of how um, this this altar and sacrifices uh, the things that are being burnt are the kidneys and livers and intestine which are the organs that cleanse the body right and so and then God receiving this as a sweet aroma um, to God it's, so these are the organs that yeah cleanse the body so it's this idea we see in Old Testament that God He's not, he's not looking to satisfy um, and get something back attributively, but he's entering in so that he could cleanse us and purify us. Um, that's consistent to, like, or, and I, I, I think the argument could be made that that's consistent to um, the reasons for circumcision and whatnot, but um, it's something that I've been sitting, sitting on um, starting this year. So, um, so I'm just kind of, this up in the air. Okay. Uh, for me. Still in process, still yeah. working through it. Got it. Okay. David, did you have any thoughts? You yeah, want to and perhaps relatedly, um, one of the, well, first, I think it's important to point that penal substitution atonement theory, I think it's only existed for the last two centuries. So, similar to um, uh, believer's baptism. Like, just a century and a half ago, people got beheaded for believer's baptism. Like, the Anabaptists and Menno Simons, uh, that was a very controversial belief only about 150 years ago. Um, but one of the, and, and I think the similar, uh, the case is uh, true as well for penal substitution. And one of the other things that I think is a rightful critique of penal substitution is that when you look at it from a purely kind of legal situ uh, perspective, it, it makes our faith more transactional. You know, so if I say the magic words, you know, and then I get to unlock whatever Jesus did, and then I get to, that's my key into heaven, you know, so it's a transaction. Like I, I come to this for some outcome, you know, outcomes and that I want, and I do this stuff kind of in a cause and effect way where like I say the words, I give my money, I do my thing as a transaction, and then God kind of, uh, you know, it's almost like a heaven insur heavenly insurance policy kind of a thing, you know. And to which I would respond and say, well, you know, if you're going to spend the rest of eternity, um, like, what are you being saved for? You know, I know you're being saved from hell, but what are you being saved for? Because if you just got, if you got that transaction down um, and you don't really know God and there really isn't much beyond just getting that transaction in, 
um, then, then uh, I, I don't see the appeal that much of, of being in heaven. You know? Gotcha, yeah. yeah. And maybe that's where the sort of the corrective of not focusing on one atonement theory, like so Christus Victor, right, which is I think speaks to more of the what am I being saved for, because I think the main point of the Christus Victor um, theory is that uh, there's something that Jesus accomplished on the cross where the, the powers of darkness, the power of sin, the power of death, power of evil, whatever you want to call it, there was something that changed because of what Jesus did on the cross. That there's a power that was broken, that now there is a, a new victory that is possible um, that wasn't possible before what Jesus did. And so maybe that speaks to sort of like, not just what am I saved from, okay, but also what am I saved for, that there's this new life that is open now, that wasn't open because before Jesus did what he did, that we can now begin to walk into. And there's a, a hope of victory. And there's a hope of transformation. There's a hope of redemption or reconciliation or whatever it might be because the power of darkness was broken on the cross. So maybe, again, the importance of making sure we have a fully developed uh, atonement theory. And the Christus Victor approach is, is actually my uh, preferred atonement theory. And one of the reasons is because it talks about the world as a battlefield, right? Um, and I think that it's, it, the world is a ba uh, it looks like a battlefield because I believe it is a battlefield where uh, there have been several Christian uh, historical traditions that I've been a part of that didn't believe that the world is in warfare. And as a result, it looked at God the Father as this, well, you know, once you know his grandmaster plan, that will explain all the evil in the world, and then, you know, that'll justify all this stuff. And, um, and, and I, I, I don't, uh, uh, I'm not comfortable with God, this God image of this, you know, stoic person who has an answer for everything, and that's going to be the, the problems for all of the evil in life. I think... Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> and I think this is, uh, you know, that perhaps can point to a lot of the um, inconsistent response of churches with respect to social injustice, yeah. right? Because some of us are, you know, think injustice is a theological conversation. Well, how is God going to like, you know, what is God greater, uh, talking about God's sovereignty and stuff. And then there's other churches, which we're hoping to embody, which is, well, that's also important, but we also need to do something about it because we're living in a world, word zone. It's not just a theological construct that we need to struggle with. Yeah. So for me personally, I, I'm not completely ready to discard penal substance. So you guys can get, already get a sense of wh where I'm coming from. I've never spoken in tongues. I don't want to give up penal substitution. So y'all know where I'm coming from. Y'all know who I am. <laughs> I hope I'm not like an extreme uh, in the extreme, but yeah, y'all know who, who I am. <laughs> So I'm, me personally, I'm not completely ready to discard penal substitution just because for me, I feel like there's the, the, the atonement or Jesus' death on the cross, there's too much connection in the scriptures between that and um, the Old Testament sacrificial system. And, you know, obviously there's different ways to, like, just like what Elliot was sharing, there's different ways to understand how Jesus' death on the cross is in line with, you know, sort of this Old Testament sacrificial system. But at least for me, I feel like I, I just find it hard to deny that there is some sort of substitutionary something happening with Jesus' death on the cross that is in line with 
kind of this, this Old Testament sacrificial system. There, there's something there that is intended there. there. Somebody is dying in place of somebody else. So for me, I'm not quite ready to discard penal substitution, but I, I have been trying to wrestle with sort of like some of these objections. Like, so for instance, like, yeah, like this, this, this picture that it gives us of God who is like wrathful, bloodthirsty, exacting punishment, um, and sort of Jesus as sort of like this helpless bystander who's like, you know, I mean, it's like, it's, it's kind of like in the movies when you see somebody's like pulls out a gun to shoot somebody and then like an innocent bystander like jumps, jumps in the way or, or kind of catches a stray bullet or something like that. And, and, and for some people, penal substitution raises that kind of picture. And so I think in that point, I think it's important for us to recognize that the picture that scripture gives us is that, you know, even like in, in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And kind of on the other side, that Jesus wasn't like sort of this helpless happenstance victim, but Jesus says, you know, I lay down my life, right? No one takes it from me, right? And so basically this idea that, you know, the father and the son were working together collaboratively, and they both of their free will chose this course of action out of love and not, you know, one, one member of the Trinity is like just, you know, just seething with anger and the other member of the trinity sort of jumps in the way you know to you know to to catch that bullet for so i think that's the first thing that i would kind of add um but yeah so i'm not 100 percent ready to give up on penal substitution um the, and then the other thing that i've spent some sorry I'll, I'll let you jump back in here and peter i'll also see you the other thing that i think that i've been trying to wrestle with is this, this idea of like it's I hear because I've heard that a lot that the the penal substitution theory is very transactional, and I've really been trying to wrap my mind around like what does that mean? Like what are what are people saying when they say that it's very transactional? And so kind of Dave, thanks thanks for sharing that because I think that, that kind of hits on I think I think and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. I think what people mean is that it makes the atonement very mechanical, right? It makes it very mechanical and very it's almost like. The point of the cross was just to fulfill some sort of legal obligation, right? Like, okay, guys, you know, I want to get you guys out of this, but we just got to, you know, do X, Y, and Z in the court and have you guys sign here, here, and here, and then you're out of it, right? And then we're good, right? Like, and so I think for a lot of people, it feels like there's no, there's no heart, there's no love, there's no soul in that. It's just this, like, legal fulfillment that needed to be fulfilled. And, and so, you know, I, I can see that. So that's something that I'm definitely wrestling with. One kind of counterpoint, and then I'll let you back in. I, I, I find that there is a lot of people who, <laughs> maybe it's not a counterpoint, maybe it's a, just an, a, a separate point. I feel like a lot of people who kind of draw away from the penal substitution theory tend to gravitate, not all, but tend to gravitate towards either Christus Victor or kind of the moral example theory, which is this idea that really what Jesus was doing on the cross was setting a, an example, a moral example for us to see, like, see, see how, how much God loves us, right? And you can see it in the cross. And for me, I feel like actually that's more problematic to me because that makes the cross very performative. Like, like you know, it kind of makes me think of like these, these guys who get on TikTok and you know, they find somebody on the street and then they do some like crazy... It, generous thing, like some just out of the extreme generous thing and record, record themselves doing it, right? And it's very performative, right? Or it makes me think of like these, these guys who are just like, 
I love you so much. I would do anything for you. See, see how, much, how much I would do for you. I would even be hurt myself for you. I would bleed for you. I would die for you. Right? Like, it's very performative. And so for me, the trouble that I have is if the cross is just a, a, an example or a picture to show us how much God loves us, I don't like, the, I don't like what the outcome of that, following that example would be, right? Like, like, like it's this performance. Like we have to show how much we love somebody. Whereas for me, I feel like, to me, it seems like there needs to be something necessary about that. He didn't do it to, put a, to do a performance to prove how much he loved. I mean, that's part of it. But there's something in Jesus' death that is necessary. Like he had to do it. And there's something in that that I need. And without it, I, I, I can't have all that God has for me. So that's where I'm at right now, but it's okay that we're kind of, you know, we're not all in the same place. But, uh, Dave, and then I, I don't know if anybody else. Start with else. Peter. What, Peter, what, did you have something you want to say? Uh, there's a woman in Brenda Talks who makes a comment that she's not out. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, and, and our church, we, we strive for all the uh, gifts of the Spirit to be equally sexy. You know, um, that's that's one of our goals. Put that ideals. on the website yeah. somewhere. <laughs> All the gifts are equally sexy. <laughs> and Marcus, also, I think you're also speaking very, um, you know, truth, uh, really uh, precisely and, and powerfully about the limitations of, uh, you know, Western education, theological study of God. Uh, it's very much built on the German uh, education system, which wants to silo everything, you know. And if you think of, you know, how do we study a living creature in biology? Well, we dissect it. You know, we, we first kill it, and then we dissect all the little parts, and then we study the little parts in uh, isolation, and then, you know, see how they connect with each other. And in many ways, we study God in that way, too. Like, when we think of systematic theology, we kind of slice and dice God into omnipotence, omniscience, and, you know, Trinitarian theology, you know, all that stuff. But when we uh, get lost in the, the woods, we, we, we lose the person of God, the, the, the gestalt, the whole of God in, along the way. Um, so perhaps, you know, one way that I, you know, one thing that I really appreciate about the um, penal substitution atonement, uh, and perhaps a couple other ones, is this idea that God's redemption of humankind, it was costly. Yeah. You know, I think that's something we can all agree on, that God chose the painful way to, uh, to reach out to us out to us so that we can be in relationship with him. And I think perhaps the, the real life implication of that is, well, uh, for us to, um, you know, when God extends his hand to us and we respond, our response is also going to be costly too. Because how, how is it not going to be costly if it's cost Jesus and God, uh, God this much to reach out to us? It also costs us something to reach out to them uh, and to be in relationship with them. And perhaps the last thing I want to just mention is, um, um, I hope you guys can kind of see that we, you know, within the teaching team and the pastoral team, we don't agree on lots of stuff. <laughs> but um, but y'all are still my brothers, and we're still part of the family, and uh, we'll, we will try to work things out. And even if we don't, we respect each other, and we still can be in community with each other. I don't. I am not going to define my like who is a Christian and who's in my community based on like whether or not we agree on everything uh, related to the faith. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, so I think just for time, we probably better wrap it up there. If anybody has something that they're really ho holding on to, is burning a hole in your soul, uh, we can continue this conversation definitely after this. And so uh, thank you guys so much, uh, Pastor Elliot, Pastor Dave. We could give them a hand. Um, Jay, and, you too, man. 
<laughs> yeah, and just a, a closing thought. I, I want to kind of end this series in the same place where we started it, which is talking about our approach to theological dialogue, which Dave has done a great job of doing here, that, that here we're, we're trying to really have open, true open dialogue. And one of the things that I kind of neglected to say, I think, at the beginning of the series is that because I think if, if I were to just ask any one of you in this room, like, do you think it would be great if we had a place where we could really talk about, you know, theology and our differences in terms of our beliefs and our perspectives? I think everybody here would be like, yeah, sounds amazing. I'd love that. But I think what you will find is that in practice, it's actually much harder, right? That when you actually try to put that into practice, there's sort of this normal human reflex that we tend to want to pull away from people who see things differently than us. And we tend to want to gravitate towards people who see things the same way as us, right? And so as much as we, in theory, might think, yeah, that sounds amazing. I would love to be in a community like that. I think what you'll find is that even maybe you're experiencing it in this room today, right? That as, you're, as we're talking and you're hearing things where it's like, man, that's not what I think. That's not quite what I believe. Or that's not what I've been taught. There, 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 there's this reflex inside that make, you know, that kind of that, um, that uh, dissonance, that cognitive dissonance. And I think if we're not intentional about it, it we're going to, our reflex is going to be to retreat into corners that kind of agree with us, right? And so I just want to encourage you guys that as we dive into this, and again, we're not saying that every, that everything is up for grabs and it doesn't matter what you believe about anything. Like there are some things that are true that we all need to accept. And we're trying to work our way to that, right, by having these open dialogue. But I just want to encourage you guys to, when you feel that, that reflex within you, that dissonance, and you feel yourself like, kind of like, oh, maybe this is not the, the right place for me. Like, actually, maybe I belong in a place that's more consistent with what, what I've grown up with or whatever it might be, to maybe have a little bit of courage to stay in that tension, right? That that's what kind of the endeavor that we're in here, to stay in the tension and that we could really kind of embrace that because that's the whole point of what we're trying to do. Yeah, the tension is the point, right? And, and to lean into that together. And so that's just kind of my encouragement to you as we do more and more of these kinds of conversations.